0: Welcome to Four Speed Ahead. I'm Craig Fuller here with the CEO of Echo, Doug Wagner. Doug, how are you?
1: Great, Craig. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, I think the last time you and I spoke was about a year ago. Uh, the world was, had just uh, recently shut down. There's a lot of questions about sort of the future of the economy, uh, the future of logistics. Uh, we now have the benefit of hindsight. How would you talk about the industry right now?
1: It's funny. I was just talking to our new hire class, uh, about an hour ago. And and one of the questions was what, what have you learned through COVID? And, um, I'll tell you what, if I go back a year ago, uh, coming out of April when everybody shut down and we had to send everybody home, you know, we, we had about a week of panic wondering, how are we going to do this? And our business volumes ever going to return. And, uh, daily daily meetings, you know, with the executive team, just uh, planning for the worst and hoping for the best. And so, you know, by the time we got to June, about a year ago, everybody was coming back. You know, the small businesses were reopening, they were selling all their products, they were running out of inventory, their suppliers were out of stock. And we just saw this huge uh, demand for, for freight. And I, I attribute a lot of that to the fact that people were staying at home and You know they were buying products and not services and and that that fueled fueled the freight economy and then i think about the same time we we started recovering from the industrial recession and uh, that was an extra boost and then all the stimulus spending that the government's had uh, we've we've just seen a tremendous freight economy over the last 12 months and when you combine that with tight supply of capacity and the driver shortage uh, i think a lot of the new class 8 truck purchases that we're seeing and from what I hear talking to trucking companies are, are purely re- replacement equipment. And so uh, it doesn't appear to me anyway that that the industry is adding any capacity. And then when I look forward, I think, okay, the, the inputs are all still very bullish, right? We, we have continued stimulus spending. We have uh, continuing improvements in demand. People are getting back to normal. Uh, you've got the potential for infrastructure spending. And, you know so many things that are going to help the demand side of the equation and I don't see any relief in sight on the supply side so uh, the big the big learnings for me was uh, we could do business in a different way you know sending all of our employees home and uh, you know now we're having trouble getting them back uh, because they like working at home but we've also proved that we can do it you know so as we look forward we think about you know new ways of doing business that are you know a little more innovative than what we've Thought we could do in the past and and i think a lot of things are possible
0: yeah it's interesting you mentioned sort of the cycle that is freight but also the tightness of drivers i've heard that some of the fleets not only can't get new truck orders but are actually selling they have empty trucks because they can't they don't have drivers for them so they're actually selling them at a premium which is sort of helping their balance sheets but it's not uh bringing additional capacity in the market this cycle you know trucking i've been around it my whole life you've been in it uh, for, for many, many years. Everyone says this cycle is different. I've heard that almost every time something slightly changes in the market and carriers have the advantage. Do you think the cycle is different this time?
1: I do. Um, in most cycles, if you just take uh, 2018 and, and going into 19, I mean, we we came out of, at the end of 2017, we had the two hurricanes, the big one in Houston and the smaller one in Florida. And that disrupted the national network of, of trucking capacity and and when those disruptions happen where people can't get into Texas and they can't get out of Texas it takes months to work that off and then that was exacerbated by the ELD mandate that we had in January and so we we I would describe 2018 as you know a decent demand but curtailed su- supply of capacity because of the disrupted network and the ELD mandate and uh, you know, that started getting worked off as we, as we progressed through 18, those tight market conditions kind of worked their way out. And at the same time, you know, I know that we had done a survey of small trucking companies because we were trying to ascertain, you know, how much capacity have you added, if any. And I think we surveyed about, oh, 5,000 small trucking companies. And we got responses from 800 of them. And on average, they added 11% more trucks. And, uh, and even the big trucking companies who were publicly saying they weren't gonna add capacity and they were gonna have discipline and, and tow the line and keep the prices elevated. you know, We, we later figured out that, oh yeah, they did add trucks. Um, fast forward to today, I don't think anybody's adding trucks. Just anecdotally, I was talking to a woman a couple of months ago uh, who has a, a small trucking company in Illinois she has six trucks. She also her and her husband have a steel distribution business and they started the trucking company to move their own steel to their customers. But they also do work for other other companies and they, you know, deal with us and other brokers to get deadheads to get their drivers back in position. And uh, I was talking to her and she said, I said, how's business? And she said, well, she goes, I have six trucks. She says three of them are parked because I can't find drivers. And um, I talked to some larger trucking companies this week and said, you know, what's going on with capacity. And I see all these big class eight truck orders and they said, yeah, we have the newest fleet we've ever had, but we haven't added any additional capacity. I think one of the things that happened during the year of COVID was that the driving schools shut down. And so, you know, some of the larger trucking companies that get 30 or 40% of their drivers right out of schools, you know, lost that pipeline. And, and so, you know, I saw one of the sell site analysts last week uh, made a call that, you know, the, the driving schools are now 70% capacity headed to 100, and that's going to solve the problem. But I don't think it is. So to, back to your original question, is it different this time? I think it's different because I see a prolonged economic recovery, and I see no end in sight to the driver shortage.
0: Yeah, it's it's certainly a tough time. I, Bloomberg did an article this past, uh, yesterday, in fact, or this past week, where uh, they covered the uh, the shortage of gasoline supplies in Colorado because the tank uh, truck operators can't get qualified drivers to drive tank. And they, they actually reached out wanting a quote on why it's hard for tank truck operators. And I was explaining to them that this hazardous material certifications just create an additional supply constraint on an already tight driver pool. Uh, and there doesn't seem to be a very quick answer. But this is labor supply issues are across all uh, industries whether we're talking about pilots where the local panera that's across the street from our offices doesn't open their dining room during the day because they don't have workers doug this seems like a real fundamental issue that could stunt the growth of the overall recovery how do you see it
1: i think you're right craig i i see it everywhere when i go to a restaurant nowadays um I'm always stunned by the the lack of service, and it's usually because they're shorthanded. Um, I've seen some chatter, you know, out on the internet uh, from from employees, not necessarily Echo employees, but just in general, that you know McDonald's is raising minimum wage to fifteen fifty an hour, and that works out to about thirty two thousand a year. You know, uh, if, if somebody's contemplating a, a starting position in the industry that pays. Say forty to fifty thousand. You know, it's not significantly higher than McDonald's. So um, there seems to be a lot of consternation with employees. Uh, there was a Wall Street article journal today, I think, uh, that, that talking about employees not wanting to return to offices and also contemplating uh, job changes. And, and so there's it's just a very unsettled time. It's tough to find people, uh, whether it's a technologists, you know, software engineers, or even, you know, salespeople, the market's competitive. And here in Chicago, you know, you've got lots of startup companies, you've got lots of tech companies, uh, and they're all hiring. So I think we have an employment situation. And I think we're also going to have some wage inflation.
0: Now, what are you guys seeing as it relates to Echo in terms of, is it harder to recruit today in terms of getting candidates into your operations? Um, are you guys open to work from home? What's the situation uh, right now as it relates to Echo?
1: So, you know, we do a lot of college recruiting. And of course, there's always a fresh crop of college graduates. And we recruit on 200 campuses. So so we, we continue to see uh, an influx of people. In fact, we just started a class two weeks ago that's got over, I think, about 95 people in it. Um, that being said, you know, all of those people that are we are recruiting seem to have more options today than they had in the past. You know, they're looking at multiple job offers and they're trying to pick which one is the right one for them. You know, we've we've continued to work remotely. Um, last June of 2020, we we told our employees that returning to work was optional. And some people did return to work, not a lot, but some. And, you know, as we go forward, we, we've thought long and hard about, you know, what, what are we gonna look like in the future? And part of us, you know, feels like we need to be more flexible because we've proved that it can work and it's worked very well. You know, we, we've had a lot of growth this year and a lot more volume and, and a tight market and, and everything we're doing is harder, but yet we're doing it from home just fine. But on the other hand, you know, when we hire on average 60 people a month, we think there's tremendous value and immersing those new people into our culture, and it's hard to do that on a on a Zoom call or a Teams call. You know, we think that there's a lot of value in what I call peer mentorship, and so you know we do have a return to office plan that starts in July, pretty pretty gentle. It starts out at two days a week, you know, and uh, if, if you if you're new at the company, it's more, but if you've got tenure, it's it's two days a week, and in September it moves to three days a week, and we're kind of taking a wait and see attitude to go beyond three days a week. But we also believe that in the future, we're going to have more flexibility. And so if you've got tenure with the company and you're a high performer, you're going to have a lot more options available to you.
0: Doug, what does this mean for cities like Chicago, which have a large pool of transportation logistics, uh, expertise, or even more meaningful to Chattanooga, which, you know, logistics is a big industry here. Um, there's a lot of questions locally in Chattanooga about whether Chattanooga, frankly, can survive uh, in terms of hosting headquarters uh, because the the wages have gone up so significantly as uh, companies have started out of you know San Francisco and New York and Chicago have started to pick off local talent. Um, any any thoughts on what this means in terms of how communities are going to shape uh, themselves in, in a post-COVID world?
1: Well speaking for chicago i mean chicago is quickly becoming a tech city right we've got right here in town we've got uh, google we've got uber we've got facebook uh, grubhub i mean we've, we've got a number of established technology companies plus we have a very active startup community and there's a lot of venture capital investments not only from silicon valley but right right here in chicago there's a lot of bc money and it's becoming uh, a place where entrepreneurs, you know, want to start a business. You know, Chicago is a world-class city, lots of great things to do, lots of talent. But especially for IT talent, it's, it's becoming, you know, very competitive. The the wages are going through the roof. And, um, and you've got to have a good story to tell. You know, if, if you're a crack software engineer, you want to go solve interesting problems. You want to build new technology. You don't want to work on old stuff and and you want to use the latest, greatest tools because that's the best thing for your career. So we're fortunate in in that we spend a lot of money on technology. We're building lots of new stuff and and we think it's the kind of place where people want to work, but it's tough, you know? And, And I would also tell you, to your point about Chattanooga, you know, companies in Chicago are trying to import talent from from the, the caller states, you know, Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, because they can't find enough labor, you know, here in Chicago. So I would think that it would put a strain on some of these other communities, you know, where, you know, Chicago-based companies are trying to steal their talent.
0: Yeah, if you, if you no longer have to be geographically defined, you can easily, someone can work from home, it sort of changes the game for smaller communities like ourselves, where if you do lose... a a source of talent, it it can actually have a pretty big impact, whereas a bigger market may be to absorb it. Uh, Doug, you mentioned Chicago being the home of a a lot of the technology uh, industry. It's also a big intersection of technology and freight. Two of the most successful freight tech companies are Project 44 and ForKites, both based in Chicago. Um, I'm curious, when we think about visibility, both in the visibility and transparency space, I'm hearing a lot of the folks uh, a lot of executives like yourself talk about that. That's no longer optional. You have to f- provide visibility and transparency through all breadcrumbs of a transaction. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I think um, over the last two years, maybe we've seen an acceleration in the adoption of technology by shippers. I would have said before that that, frankly, most of the, the big transportation companies were were ahead of the the marketplace. Um, because if you think about it, a lot of shippers, you know, the transportation department is the last one to get access to capital and technology, and, and it's always kind of lagged probably other areas of their companies. Uh, but in the in the last 24 months, we've seen companies much more willing to adopt technology and, and to your point, even demanding it. So today, there's lots of large shippers that want you know, near real time updates on every single shipment that you're, you're moving for them. And, and uh, it's not it's not uncommon to have an API connection with a shipper and they demand a, an update every 15 minutes. And if you don't do that, you're going to get a bad score on your scorecard.
0: You, th- you think it's basically no longer an option you have to have it to participate the bids?
1: Well, it's a fragmented market. So there's there's clearly lots of shippers that don't have those demands. But if you want to play with the big dogs, I, I would say absolutely. It's, it's a condition of doing business.
0: Now Doug, Echo's historically had a very uh, has worked a lot with small, medium-sized shippers, a lot less concentration in the, the larger uh, shipper community. Um, is that still the case for you guys as you build up, continue to build out your business and grow it?
1: No, not really. I would say that if you looked at our our business, uh, LTL certainly has a small shipper focus because you know larger LTL shippers are generally going to deal direct with a carrier and, and don't don't need a a third party in between. Uh, not always the case, but generally the case. But when you get to truckload, by definition, it's kind of the opposite. It's the larger truckload shippers that can only manage so many relationships with asset based carriers. And they got to fill in the gaps with with uh, third parties like Echo, and so you know, in particular, as we've grown our truckload business, um, we are you know operating with a lot of Fortune 100 companies, and you know we're in those routing guides, and and uh, you know as is typically the case, you know if you break into let's call it a Fortune 100 truckload shipper, and get into their routing guide for the first time. You know, you're usually going to get a few lanes and an opportunity to prove yourself. But as you prove yourself, as you do a good job, you're going to get access to their spot market freight. And then next year when the, when the bid comes out, you get the RFP and plus you've got a working relationship, you know, you're going to get the opportunity to bid on more lanes and they're going to be willing to to, to give you more lanes because you've proven your service capability. So. I would say in recent years, uh we've we've had a lot of our growth, and probably most of our growth has actually come from larger shippers.
0: So you're seeing a lot of is is there a construct in the market? I know last year during COVID, the larger shippers were predominantly the winners over the small ones because they had more sophisticated supply chain networks. But what what are you seeing in a post or a recovery market? Are you seeing uh small businesses also uh and small shippers also? uh do well or any any difference between what we're seeing from the large enterprise shippers with the small ones?
1: Yeah, I would say if you if you went back a year ago last summer, uh the, the small shippers struggled because they depleted their inventories and and they couldn't restock fast enough, you know, if if it normally took them 4 weeks but between the time they placed an order with their suppliers and it, it landed on their dock, you know, it was now taking eight or 12 weeks because their suppliers were backed up, you know, especially if, if the products were originating, you know, in Europe or Asia. Um, I think what's, what that's caused is for those smaller shippers to take on bigger inventories. So I I don't think they've necessarily got any more sophisticated in managing their supply chains. They're, they're just carrying more stock. And, uh, I think the reverse is true with the larger shippers that, you know, we saw them get very creative, you know, uh, especially when you had the port congestion on the West coast, you know, we had uh, one customer who is a big supplier of Walmart and, you know, they needed to get their product into 42 Walmart distribution centers. And, you know, they were working with us to figure out how to bypass their own DCs and go directly from, you know, the, the Inland Empire in Southern California, you know, to, to 42 Walmart DCs to satisfy one of their biggest customers. So, We've seen a lot of creativity. You know, we saw again with the port congestion, people going into Vancouver and Seattle to try to bypass uh, L.A. Long Beach, um, and so you know, it's it's a tale of, of two size shippers.
0: Is, is there a risk, though? This is something I didn't sort of think a lot about is because you have such tight inventories. And you have shippers that are sourcing products from multiple vendors that perhaps they didn't before and from multiple locations around the world. Is there a risk of us having a hangover from all this activity once the economy gets on a solid footing and we start to rebuild inventories? Is there a risk of it, of everything slowing down? Or or do you think that uh, this cycle is going to be pretty persistent?
1: I don't know if I know the answer for sure. I have a couple of thoughts, though. One of my thoughts was, I think one of the things that caused the surge in freight was the fact that people weren't going on vacation, they weren't taking the cruise, they weren't going to the movie theater, they weren't going out to dinner, and what they were doing was sitting at home buying more stuff on Amazon, right? So I think that benefited the freight industry. Um, as those people get back to normal, you know, are they going to now buy less stuff on Amazon and spend more of their... You know their their money on on services and and vacations and travel and and some of those things. So that could be a detractor that, that will, you know, it helped us on the way up and maybe it'll it'll hurt us on the way down. Um, so that's one input I think. Um, but the other one is you know if we if we get an infrastructure bill, and we're going to be spending whatever the number is a trillion trillion and a half dollars on infrastructure, that's a lot of freight you know ultimately. And so that's going to heat up. A certain portion of our economy and certain certain shippers, and that's going to put a strain. Um, you think about all the stimulus money that we've been seeing, and as you know, you know when you inject money into the economy, there's a multiplier effect because you know when when I get when I get a check, I'm going to go spend it, and then whoever I spend that money with, they're going to go spend it, and and so that money has more value than the face value, and I think there's a lot of the multiplier effect going on in our economy right now as as we've had all this federal stimulus and unemployment money uh, we also know there's a lot of people sitting at home right now because they're making more money collecting unemployment than they would be you know driving a truck or working at Burger King or whatever the case may be um, but eventually they got to go back to work so I just think there's uh, a lot of mostly bullish things you know people in this industry as you know especially the investor community always worry about where are we in the freight cycle and you know, if this is good as it gets, when does it start getting bad again? <laughs> and normally, you know, you could probably figure that that's somewhere in the next twelve to eighteen months—a uh, true story. But I, I almost think that the conditions we see right now are going to persist, you know, well into twenty twenty-two and, and maybe beyond, because I just don't see anything uh, pulling the other way, other than maybe the shift of of, uh, of discretionary spending going from products back to services.
0: Yeah, it's anyone's guess. I mean, we all have sort of our own thoughts. And uh, I, I think the market is, everyone's a little paranoid because we saw the, you know, there was five cycles in the past five years or four cycles in the past five years. You get a lot of, uh, oh, it's a it's a pretty a gut-wrenching experience to go through those cycles. You certainly we, saw, we saw an entire there.
1: cycle last April and May.
0: <laughs> oh, I know. In, in and in really two months or a month and a half, it was sort of a super cycle. And it's, continued on since then. So uh, a lot's going on. Doug, you're you're a student of the markets. you talked about investor sentiment. We have at FreightWaves can't keep up with all the deals that are getting funded in venture capital, especially around supply chain, because that's where we tend to focus. But there's also sort of run in the equity markets. I also know you dabble or have dabbled in the past in crypto. What do you take of all of this stuff that's going on? I mean, certainly some of it's Fed stimulated, but- what, what is your view on capital markets?
1: Well, I'd like to put a gag on Elon Musk because he's killing my <laughs> crypto portfolio.
0: Yeah, he was not good for crypto, has not been recently good for crypto. Um,
1: I'll tell you what, there's, there's a lot of money out there. You know, the, the private equity firms, the VCs, you know, they, they continue to raise new funds. Uh, they're trying to put that to work. You've seen what's going on in the SPAC market. Uh, the, the SPACs were very sexy in 2020, and then I think that's been overdone a little bit. Now there's a lot of SPAC money looking for a home. So you've got all this money in these funds that needs to get put to work. Meanwhile, debt is still cheap. Um, it's, you know, you you can raise capital with very low interest rates on the debt side. You know, there's all this equity capital that's looking for a home. And so, you know, we see valuations uh, on, on private deals um, that are, as high as they've ever been and they're they're fueled by lots of capital and lots of access to cheap debt and uh, you know it's it's an interesting time and i don't know what's going to make that change unless it's higher interest rates uh, or a softening of the economy but it's hard to predict that.
0: Dick, is it hard for echo to look at valuations and and uh, dip your feet in the water in terms of acquiring businesses because it is so inflated
1: it is because you know, as a public company, you know, we can look at having three or four times leverage, you know, uh, that that's acceptable to a institutional public equity investor. Um, whereas a private equity firm will put as much leverage on a business as they think the business can stand, you know, they don't, they don't want to put it at risk. But the more leverage they can put on a, on a deal, the, the better their ROI, right? So, so it is hard, you know, so for us, you know, tuck-ins are still relatively easy for us to do. It's it's just that they don't move the needle as much. Um, but when you look at larger transformational deals or adding new capabilities, you know, if the deal is big enough to be a platform company for private equity, you know, now you're talking about, you know, an auction process where, you know, we're seeing 13, 14, even 15 times multiples and seven times leverage. Yeah, that, we can't compete with that.
0: Yeah, I've heard that talking to venture capitalists that in the M&A market, it's typically sponsored to private equity. There hasn't been, with all of the deal activity that's happening, there isn't a lot of M&A happening uh, because companies just can't stump their valuations. There's a disparity between the private markets and companies with an established investor base that's really sort of uh, drug it down. Does that change over the next year? Do we? Do you think we'll see the days where uh, companies like an Echo or others will will start being more inquisitive in the uh, logistics space and buying, you know, more mature brokerages?
1: Yeah. I mean, we're, you know, we're actively looking right now, um, not necessarily at pure brokerage. I mean, I think for us, you know, when we were younger in our life cycle, it made sense to buy brokers because it gave us density and scale and geographic coverage. Uh, to, the, the hazard with buying a brokerage is that, the, it, that it conflicts with your existing book of business, right? So, you know, if I'm doing business with Anheuser-Busch and I buy another company and they're doing business with Anheuser-Busch, now I've got two salespeople that I've got a referee, you know, and, and then the same on the carrier side. You know, I've, I've got, uh, you know, two different carrier reps that are dealing with the same trucking company and they, they get commissions. Uh, you, you've got to deal with that. The other thing is that buying a brokerage at our, in our current situation is that it, it doesn't really give us scale that we don't have. We, we feel like we have adequate scale to be competitive with anybody in any lane. So as we think about M&A, you know, we're looking more at you know what additional capabilities can we add that are fairly co- close to our core. They're not asset-based, but they, they maybe diversify us a little bit out of the freight cycle and you know we've looked at some technology businesses we've looked at some data science businesses we've looked at some consolidation businesses and and so you know there are a lot of things in adjacent spaces that that are attractive to echo and maybe not big enough to be on the private equity radar and that's that's probably where we'll have success in the short term and then you know more transformational deals you know if you were thinking about like a freight forwarding business or final mile delivery business, you know, th- those are interesting too, but I think in this current market environment, those would be tougher to do.
0: We, what do you think the digital brokers that have gotten, I mean, if just arguably in, in looking at the echo balance sheet and income statement, what public multiples are, and then, you know, through our own um, research, looking at private multiples, it's a very big disparity between the digital brokers uh, and traditional, or I should say established, uh, players. What, what do you think the game ends for at some point, the investors in those digital brokers have to exit. So where do you think it ends up? Do you think it continues to be a sponsor deal where it just gets passed from sponsor to sponsor, uh, until the business gets to a certain scale and then it becomes an interesting asset for someone like an echo or, or where do we, where does all that go? Because putting a high valuation on a business is great. It looks great on paper, but we all know that founders don't get paid until they actually exit.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, Craig, I I know you understand the VC game and and they're, they're different type of investors than private equity and private equity are different types of investors than, than uh, public equity investors. And they all have different risk tolerances. Um, The, the, VC investors are looking for astronomical growth. They want to see disruption. They want to see disintermediation, and if they believe that a particular investment will accomplish those things, they'll they'll pay up, and they protect themselves with with uh, preferences, uh, liquidation preferences, that sort of protect their downside. So, you know, if you apply conventional wisdom to VC valuations, it's it's not always apples and apples, and and they're pretty smart guys that know what they're doing. So, you know, I, I don't I don't try to uh, diminish that at all. Um, I do think that there comes a point where they have to get profitable, you know, if, if they want to continue to either raise capital or you know, they've got to have a story to tell, right? So um, we saw some market share grab a couple of years ago. Uh, now it, it, it appears that there's more of a focus on getting profitable. Um, you know, the, the path that echo took, and I don't know if we would do it the same way if we started over, but you know, when, when we took the company public in 2009, our revenue was 260 million. Now that's pretty small for a public company. And our story to investors was we're going to be a high growth company and we're going to be profitable. And I remember one time in a, in an investor meeting, the investor said, why do you tell that story? And I said, well, that's what we're trying to do. And he said, yeah, but you can't do both. He said, at your size, you either have to be a, a high growth story or a profit story. It's hard to do both. And I think in retrospect, he was right. You know, uh, if you look at the playbook for most tech companies, it's grow as fast as you can, take as much market share as you can, and then turn up the price dial at a future date to get profitable. You know, that's what Amazon did, right? You know, how many years was Amazon unprofitable? Um, and investors gave them a break because they knew the day would come and lo and behold, it did. But I think it's just a different approach. Uh, and and I think that if they continue to have success, both in growth and eventually and in a profit and they get to a scale, you know, they'll they'll find an exit, whether it's an IPO or a merger or, or or something of that sort. I don't think all of them will make it, but I think the good ones will make it.
0: Yeah, it's funny you mentioned liquidity preferences because I, I think a lot of people I tell a lot of people who've never raised capital, who sort of read headline numbers and they don't understand they don't understand what valuations mean and liquidity preferences. And um, it's often missed that uh, investors are able to protect their downside, but they have optionality uh, in many ways on the upside. And I think that's, that's missed. Cause you can put, you and I could go start a business tomorrow with, with zero revenue, put a billion dollar valuation on it and it would look really good in headlines, but it really doesn't, mean that it's worth a billion
1: dollars appreciate this. So, you're um, right if, maybe, if it doesn't work out you're not going to make a penny right craig
0: that's exactly right that's exactly right. in fact when we we just did a a, a small round a, a few months ago it was unsolicited it was a 16 million dollars and we hit it was a small round relative to how, how much we've raised and people were curious why it was a small number and frankly because we don't need a lot of money why would we continue to stack money in front of me and the, the management team here. If we don't need it, it doesn't sort of nonsensical. So there's a lot of confusion in venture capital. Uh, and it is interesting as companies go public, you mentioned the SPAC market. I don't know what's gonna happen there with all these SPACs that have raised money, uh, which have raised a significant amount of capital, um, but it's gonna be uh, a lot to watch, Doug. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll see where that ends up. I've always asked this every time you've come on to make a prediction for the next cup. I, I typically ask for five years, but because we're in these sort of super cycles that are measured in, in much shorter time frames, what does the next year look like for uh, just overall? Any predictions you have
1: for Echo or for the industry?
0: Just overall, any bull call?
1: I just think that we're going to surprise everybody with how long this cycle lasts. Um, I, I think people. I've come to expect that you know cycles last about 18 months and and then uh, revert to the mean or go back to the trough or whatever. And I just think that, as you indicated with your earlier question, it's different this time, um, largely because of the driver shortage. Uh, I think autonomous vehicles can help, but I think those are a lot farther away than people think. Uh, for for not for the technology, but because you know for acceptance. I think you're not going to see trucks driving themselves until you see a lot more cars driving themselves. And I think, you know, the railroad industry is going to, when it looks like it's a reality, will step up and oppose it through their packs and things that we've seen them do in the past with uh, longer vehicles. And and uh, so, you know, I think the autonomous vehicles will continue to play out, but won't really be a story until, you know, I don't know, five or 10 years. Uh, I think demand's going to stay strong. I think the driver supply is going to crimp The the supply of capacity, and we're going to continue to see these tight market conditions for longer than we're used to.
0: Well, good predictions. I hope that you're right. For the sake of the industry, uh, it would be great to see a multi year cycle where everybody wins. And I think what's often missed in this the driver shortage or driver squeeze, whatever the term you like, is that ultimately that means higher wages for drivers. It makes it tougher, but it means higher wages for drivers, and then ultimately means higher rates for companies like Echo and uh, other participants in the market, Um, and we'll see where all this ends up. Well, Doug, really appreciate the time. Uh, Best of luck in finishing out the year, and uh, we look forward to seeing you again.
1: All right. Well, thanks, Craig, and appreciate you having me on the show.